Welcome to Grain Talk, a podcast by Grain Farmers of Ontario. I'm Rachel Telford. And I'm Lillian Kim. The Grain Talk podcast can be found on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and under the Grain Talk tab at gfo.ca. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform. In this episode of Grain Talk, I speak to Laura Ferrier, Grain Farmers of Ontario agronomist, and Ian McDonald and Alex Berry from Omafra about the impact of wet conditions on the harvest and how to mitigate any damage you may have caused in your fields. I will have a conversation with Brendan Burney, Chair of Grain Farmers of Ontario's Board of Directors, and this week we spotlight HR on the farm. First, a Grain Talk news update. Grain Farmers of Ontario is pleased to see the progressive and insightful shared vision of the next policy framework for the future of Canadian agriculture released by the federal, provincial and territorial ministers of agriculture in the Guelph Statement. The statement acknowledges the continuous work done by farmers to produce food while maintaining Canada's natural resources. The policy framework highlights five priority areas, climate change and the environment, science, research and innovation, market development and trade, building sector capacity and growth, resiliency and public trust. The priority areas in the new policy framework shared by the ministers align with grain farming and our own priority areas at Grain Farmers of Ontario. Ontario's grain farmers are up for the challenges of farming for a growing population with an eye to keeping natural resources sustainable for the future. And we look forward to working with governments to partner in these initiatives. Grain Farmers of Ontario reminds all farmer members of the importance of using a licensed grain dealer. Farmers who sell grains and oilseeds to licensed dealers or store crops at elevator operators may be financially protected under the Grain Financial Protection Program if a licensed dealer does not meet their payment or storage obligations within the agreed timeline. Farmers who have not been paid for delivered grain within the timelines established under the Grains Act should contact AgriCore right away at one 888-247-4999. If a dealer's grain license is suspended or surrendered, they cannot purchase or accept grain from Ontario farmers. Any contracts for the purchase of grain with a dealer who does not hold a grain license are not subject to the Grains Act and regulations. Farmers who find themselves in this situation may choose to seek independent advice on dealing with unfulfilled contracts. AgriCorps delivers the Grain Financial Protection Program on behalf of the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs and appoints a Chief Inspector to issue grain dealer licenses and performs dealer and elevator inspections. Visit AgriCorps.com for an up-to-date list of licensed grain dealers and elevator operators and to read more about the protection program. Grain Farmers of Ontario is pleased to welcome Jody Wilson-Raybould, leader, author and former member of Parliament, and comedian Stuart Brittlestar Reynolds to the 2022 March Classic, Sowing the Seeds of Opportunity, Innovation and Tomorrow. Their attendance at our conference was recently confirmed and announced to the public. The 2022 March Classic will take place on Tuesday, March 22nd at RBC Place in London, Ontario. Wilson Raybould joins the March Classic speaker lineup to talk to attendees about her time as a federal cabinet minister. The March Classic will also host the first Canadian live taping of the U.S. Farm Report with hosts Tyne Morgan and Sonny Perdue, the 31st United States Secretary of Agriculture. Our Tuesday evening banquet entertainment will feature Canadian comedian and the Internet's favorite unproven dad, Stuart Reynolds, also known as Brittle Star. 
For more information and to sign up for email updates, go to gfo.ca slash marchclassic. And now, here's my conversation with Laura Ferrier, Ian McDonald, and Alex Berry. This week on the Green Talk podcast, we have three guests with us to have a conversation about the fall conditions that we're experiencing in our fields and maybe some of the damage that's been happening there and what we can do to mitigate it. Uh, we have joining us Laura Ferrier, Grain Farmers of Ontario's agronomist. Welcome, Laura. Thanks so much, Rachel. And from the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs, we have Ian McDonald, the Crop Innovation Specialist. Hello, Ian. Pleasure to be here. And Alex Berry, the Soil Management Engineer. Hello, Alex. Hi. Um, thank you all so much for joining us for this conversation. Um, you know, I think it's been quite the fall. Everybody was expecting a, a great harvest in terms of the, the crop quality and, you know, the yields that they were expecting. And then wet weather hit. <laughs> Laura, can you maybe give us a little bit of um, some more details on what you've seen and heard that our farmer members have been dealing with this fall? For sure, Rachel. So like you said, it started out as a spectacular fall. Um, it was earlier than the normal around that two weeks earlier than normal um, for, for beginning harvest and things started rolling and then rain decided to uh, rain on our parade and um, it just hasn't really let up. Lots of uh, areas have gotten exponential amounts of rain much more than than usual for for the month of October and uh, there's been flooding and uh, creek banks overflowing in some areas and it has been a, a tough harvest um, for many um, there there has been a lot of, of challenges just in quality trying to get soybeans off of the field that aren't extremely high moistures and that aren't mud tagged um, this past week or the week that we're in right now actually is uh, is looking reasonably promising, but there is still rain in the forecast. So we'll hopefully avoid those, those rain showers and be able to keep going. But um, yeah, in general, uh, like yields are great, but um, it's been a challenging, challenging harvest just because of the moisture that we've received. And, and there is going to be some maybe remedial action that's required after all these ruts and marks across the fields um, as we go forward. And as, as you say, like it's this week is, I guess, the best weather window that we've had for harvest. Um, but Ian, just uh, the fact that the rain kept coming or on and off, it just it hasn't let the fields dry up. What have you been seeing? I, I would agree. I would go back even to cereal harvest, though, Laura, when uh, we had cooperators uh, trying to get weed off and it was like an eight week period. And so, again, depending on where you are. Some places, especially to the southwest, you know, huge amounts of rain since August, and it's been making it miserable. Other guys have had not huge amounts of rain, but just rain every other day, such that it never dries out either the ground or the crops in terms of harvestability. So it's it's been frustrating, and uh, but uh, I was out Sunday night towards London, and then again down there yesterday, and the combines are just going crazy. So a lot is going to come off in the next few days. Alex, what have you been seeing? Well, similar. Uh, home at the parents' farm, is we got through the soybeans. We waited and waited a couple of weeks for it to be dry, but um, the soybeans to be dry. Um, the fields are a little bit wet, but uh, they're still trafficable um, where we are down by the lake, Lake Ontario. Um, so that said, we've Dad was in a cornfield the other day that was definitely plasticine on top. I don't know how um, 
<laughs> a wet that went down, uh, but it had been cultivated, not uh, disked in the springtime before corn went in. Um, so it was pretty, it was basically powder uh, way back in April when it was planted. So same with Ian driving around here in London. Um, people gave up on soybeans two weeks ago and switched to corn just to get something done. So the one farmer that Alex and I talked to last week, he was very emphatic about the fact that he hadn't touched a soybean field with the combine for 31 days as of last Thursday. I saw a tweet similar to that where somebody had said they didn't get a field finished. They thought, oh, it's not going to rain much tomorrow. And 38 days later, they finally got back to finish that field that they'd started. Yeah. So yeah. it's definitely been a yeah. challenge. Um, Alex, how do you tell if the the ruts or the, the damage that you might be seeing in your field in terms of being, you know, being able to see where you've driven? Um, how do you know if that's just surface damage or if it's gone deeper? Well, the... I mean, it's not going to tell you much right now. Um, like you can use a tile probe, um, but uh, like it's if your ground's already saturated, you can pretty well push a tile probe into the ground as far as you want, really. Um, what it's going to tell you is when it does dry up, um, it'll show you those areas that have been a little bit more consolidated than the rest of the field. So, um, Basically, uh, with a tile probe, what you can discover in your field is areas that have been consolidated more than other areas. It won't tell you, you know, how con consolidated it is. I'm sure the the penetrometer reading would give you a a reasonable guess as to the amount of consolidation. But um, my go-to is if you've got a good spot in your field, you know it's good. Um, just use a a tile probe to to compare all the other areas to that. And Ian, as we're looking um, you know, at the rest of the harvest, what are some things that farmers can be doing right now to sort of prevent any more damage to their fields or to prevent, you know, compaction issues as they are heading out and, and rushing to get harvest done? Like with anything agriculture, there's not any one straight answer. I guess if you're really wet and you're not in the snow belt and you can wait for that ground to freeze, um, that might be the, the path forward. Otherwise, if, if snow's in your area, you've got to get that crop out of there. One of the biggest things that I like to recommend, but people just laugh at me, but I'm serious, is um, just because you have that big combine and that big grain buggy doesn't mean you have to fill them. So when soil conditions are great, have at or fill her up. But when it's tough going, really think about whether that's worth it or not and set yourself up so that you have traffic lanes in the field where the buggy meets the combine and uh, that way you you keep the the wheel traffic really isolated to some very specific spots that you then know where they are and you can go out and address them afterwards. And when we talk about our, our field conditions right now, um, you know, we've had a lot of conversations um, about how do we create healthy soils that maybe can be a bit more resilient in these conditions? So, you know, have you, have you, Alex or Ian, either of you seen in those fields where you know that they have some good management practices for their fields where they're maybe doing a bit better this year? Again, it's hard to tell at this time of year because things are dying off type of thing, right? Um, if you look at no-till ground, like Alex was talking about, and the field that he talked about was a, a neighbor's field, not their own because they're primarily no-till, and I look at people that I've 
got cover crops in that are doing biostrip till cropping and stuff and that ground carries equipment better than stuff nearby where it's been worked. Laura, in, in your travels, um, have you seen something similar as to what Ian's describing? Yeah, I think there's there's definitely areas and, and, and growers that have seen better um, results from what they've been doing in the field for sure. And uh, maybe not the, the mess that some areas have, have also, but it also depends on a lot of how much rain and what's the soil conditions in general, and what type of soil are you dealing with? So, um, but yeah, exactly what Ian has, has said too. It's, it's, uh, it's an, just in general, it's an interesting year. And I think we're going to learn a lot from this year going forward too. And I think the thing again, I need to think about too, is that you know, we put a lot of investment into making healthier soils and then you get a year like this and they can all disappear. So it kind of makes you think, why bother? But I still believe that these soils that are in better shape are more resilient, are more able to bounce back from tough falls like this. So if we do have damage in the field, either some big ruts, um, you know, that we the farmers might want to mitigate, when does that work need to happen? Um, you know, and what is sort of the, the timeline for building back? Well, the short answer to that is when it's dry again. Um, I, if I had time, I would have stopped into the fellow's field um, somewhere in London. Guy in a tractor out just working mud burying corn stalks because I guess that's the way he does it and it was just ribbons of mud coming through the disc um and I just shook my head what are you doing um so there's there's a time and a place for tillage and it's not like manure spreading where your tank's gonna run over and you got to do it you don't have to do tillage in poor conditions and it's best not to do tillage in poor conditions um so the uh if you do have to get out and you probably will if you've packed packed the ground this fall you're gonna have to do tillage to to fix it um unless you got a pretty spectacular spring cover crop you can you can plant but i don't know of one that exists um you got to do it when it's dry and you got to be careful when you go back on it um so don't you know, work it into a powder before a, a week of rain and then expect to plant it and not do any damage. And I think, I think that's a big struggle with a lot of guys, right? We're used to that fall tillage. It's supposed to be corrective. But when you think about some of the winters that we're getting, we're just not getting the frost action down deep to, to recover some of this stuff. Um, I think you need to go out and fix the, the ruts and stuff like that um, as, as diligently as you can in as small a space as you can and then think about, like Alex is saying, wait until after wheat the year after to, to get in there with a deep ripper because the problem with a deep ripper is it works good. It does break that pan up, but now you, you leave your field in a potential for you to drive that compaction deeper if you go over those areas with heavy implements too soon before they've settled. So at this point, would it be better for some to wait until spring to do some, some remediation? I would think so at this point, like, unless we get a pretty, it's not going to dry. It's not, not going to dry <laughs> between now and now and December. So realistically, like it's honest to goodness, it's going to hurt while you're doing it, but just forget about it. You've, you've, you got your crop off, put the money in the bank, spend some time with your family um, and think about, 
well, I guess hope that you get good weather next um, next spring. But uh, I I wouldn't race to to try to to fix anything right now personally. To me, the thing for this fall is identify those areas that are really badly damaged, and and sort of make yourself a prescription map of where you really need to address it with deeper tillage or some other activity so that you don't leave yourself having to do the whole field when you don't really need to. Yeah, I tried to convince dad a year ago. We had some bad ruts. Um, and uh, what we ended up going out and doing is um, buying a small disc, um, turned like a really small disc. It went behind the 3020 and was basically useless because it wasn't heavy enough. <laughs> but there's no real, like look at the, amount of money people are spending on fancy strip till units right now to do a very specific task. And that is, in my opinion, um, everything short of being a full blown no tail drill. Um, so <laughs> you can, you could get creative if you just have to fill ruts. Um, cause if you think about, um, there's the situation where you were on the field with something heavy and you didn't really leave a visible track um but like the cornfield we were in was just plasticine so like you've definitely packed where you've driven um but they're not might not be a, a really egregious looking rut um contrast that with the field around the corner from me in london the fella put you now foot deep ruts in it with a like a white combine um so not even a heavy machine but had the narrow tires on it and rutted it right up um where did that dirt go? Well, it went either straight down or squeezed out the sides like Play-Doh. Um, so to my mind, to fix that, uh, if you want to rip just the middle of the wheel track and almost like a fancy potato hiller, you could pull the pull all the squished out dirt back into the rut um, and and even just do that. If you were just looking to fix, I don't need to chisel plow 12 feet wide to fix, you know, effectively three feet of damage. Um, yeah, it's going to take some time and effort and trial and error, but um, I mean, it'll give you something to do in April. <laughs> so, um, and then, and then what I would do is plant through that on a bit of an angle so that I'm, you're not tracking down um loose soil um you know the big thing with strip tail is you you work it up put your fertilizer in and then when you go and plant it it would behoove you to not drive right in your um your tilled strips um so you you spend a bit of time setting your wheels so that you're not driving on it well um in this case you can just drive on a bit of an angle so you're not driving on all of it Alex made a good point there too, though, in that we often associate compaction with the big ruts and stuff like that. But from work we've seen in the West under drier conditions and stuff, even when you can hardly see a track, there is a yield hit and compaction happening either in the top or deeper down in the subsurface. So the, the out and out visual in the field may not be completely indicative of what the full damage is. That was actually a question I was going to ask is what is sort of that yield implication when we do have a compaction or damage to the field? Yeah, the hardest part's going to be, um, and I wouldn't even start to think about 
um, you know, what did I do for deep compaction? Um, cause that's hard to know, I guess what the impact's going to be and depending on how heavy things were in your exact conditions. Um, so I wouldn't go out and, you know, try to fix a problem that may or may not be there, but, um, the research in past in Europe, um, is about a, what is it? A three, three bushels or something loss, uh, sort of semi-permanent from deep compaction and the rebound, the rebound from, um, well, okay. The, in the first year following it was what, 15% or something, um, total, uh, and that rebounds quite quickly, but there is sort of a, a lingering three bushel loss. Now, I mean, three bushels is, I mean, I, we've easily lost three bushels on, you know, just stand losses in the wheat this year. And, um, soybeans, you get header loss. So it's, is it may really worth chasing that deep compaction for, to get those three bushels back? I got to do that for what, 12 bucks an acre <laughs> to get it back. Um, so in that sense, it's better just to not do it. Um, because it's like you're not going to fix it for for that amount of money um and you don't know whether what you're going to try to fix it with is going to help really um what we're going to see next year is you know definitely some topsoil damage um the uh winter will cure a bit of this um just with freeze thaw and if you do have some some amount of cover crop on stuff um, it'll be interesting to see at home because we went pretty crazy with oats on um, the wheat and no, yeah, the wheat ground and some some of the clover ground, I guess, got some um, and it grew gangbusters. Like when did we plant that? Uh, it was only about two months ago, but <laughs> it's a foot and a half high now. So um and we've been driving on the piece by the yard we've been driving on it to turn stuff around and and move equipment around so it'll be interesting to see whether we've really damaged that spot um so we got kind of an impromptu test plot at home um but yeah i really wouldn't race into anything and your loss is such a difficult thing to come up with because it you know humans do things in sort of straight lines and and perfect circles and nature doesn't do that. And then when you think about how we harvest, you know, a 12 row head relative to four feet of, of tire tread uh, across a field, all of the yield impact gets diluted in that. So it's really hard to figure and then add in the complexity in terms of soil type, topography, moisture in the fields in terms of their yield potential. They're really hard numbers to come up with. Those that are really into it, they just, have proven to themselves time and time again that it makes sense to to do the mitigation strategies that we've been talking about since we did the big uh, compaction action event with IFAO at Arthur in 2017. Um, but having a definitive number is really difficult to come up with. We've mentioned cover crops uh, a couple of times um, and how, you know, having a sort of a, a resilient soil base is going to get you through a year like like this fall. Um, what are some other longer term strategies that, you know, really help in terms of building up good, healthy soil? 
Well, we put together a long list of different things you can do and they all cost different monies and it's hard to prioritize what you do, but things like building soil by enhancing that rotation, getting cereals back in so that you can add in both the aspect of the cereal and cover crops beyond that and be able to do traffic pass stuff in the field during the summer after wheat harvest when you wouldn't have that is less damaging than if you have to do it spring or fall. But other things are like, you know, drainage, you know, where's your drainage? How much can you afford to add in, in terms of where you're seeing the damage? Um, investing in the best and the most rubbery you can put under equipment. They're just, for the size of the equipment today, we're just not getting enough rubber under it. So we need to think about that more. And uh, included in that is the, discussion about the central tire inflation systems with big bulky uh, heavyweight equipment and can you manipulate that um you know we always talk about less tillage and it's not that we're anti-tillage it's just the right tillage at the right time in the right place is really the sort of target you should be thinking about um another thing is is that you know one of the worst areas is always the headlands right and so you're seeing quite a number of farmers now invest in gravel and making a, an unloading zone at the at the field entrance so that they can reduce the amount of damage on those headlands by having a very defined track and then onto a solid base to load the trucks with. Now, you mentioned equipment and, you know, the equipment getting bigger and, and perhaps not loading up as, as sort of a mitigation strategy this fall. But, you know, equipment does seem to be getting bigger. I know some farmers, uh, you know, depending on where they are, they may not have the bigger equipment just because they can't get down roads to get to their fields with it. But, you know, is that bigger equipment, um, you know, a cause for concern? I, I guess the thing that's interesting about that, and then again, in the compaction work that we've been doing with soil and crop and innovative farmers, Oftentimes we find that some of the smaller equipment is actually more injurious relative to guys that have big equipment that are conscious of it. So they've made a real point of getting the right amount of rubber under them. So like a great big, huge combine with, you know, 400 bushels of hopper capacity that has big 1080s or 1200s or whatever tires on and putting big tires on the back of the combine. Um, potentially you're seeing less damage than like Alex was saying that the neighbor that he saw with the older combine with narrow high inflation tires sort of have to look at the implement and and spec it out to see what you can do yeah that said we bought this new combine at home um, and you know doing my due diligence on the tires as I tell everyone else to do but come to find out that the tire package that's on it um is really maxed out and very non-ideal um for you know the size of that combine the next size down um that tire package would be i would say optimal because we could get the tire pressure down to about 22 or 23 right now uh, if you want to do sort of any well, right now to use that combine as it is um, with a bin full, um, you got to have the, the tires at about 30 pounds. And that really kind of defeats the purpose of having a, a good tire on it, in my mind. Um, now they are, uh, there is a lot of tire. It's way wider than our old, 
our old combines, way more rubber um, than the old combine. Um, more so, in fact, um, the uh, fitting it through the bridges is a little bit difficult. We had to get creative the other day. So that said, I am quite shocked um, how well it did traffic. What I would, yeah, this is a tough year, um, but I'm surprised it uh, it carries as well as it does. Um, even with what I consider sub suboptimal tires. Now we'll find out next year um, what the wheel tracks look at like. Because you could, even on soybean emergence this year, you could pick out every little just wheel track or uh, where your uh, residue management from the previous year was different. I wouldn't say, you know, bad, but if you had a heavy spot of soybean chaff or wheat chaff, um, soybean emergence wasn't so good um, compared to the rest of the field. So we'll, we'll vary, time will tell here on <laughs> what the damage of the, the new combine was. And it is interesting in that in the spring, we thought we had perfect conditions for planting, but once we got into that dry period that everybody seems to have forgot about now, uh, we were seeing tire tracks from planters and, and other equipment in the fields. Um, so we, you know, maybe a guy, guys went a day or two too early in the spring and it's just compaction is a fickle thing, right? It comes and goes and the level of intensity of it varies with so many different factors. One of the things that's always frustrating is that, you know, some of our best ground is usually our lower ground, our ground that's wetter. So it's the ground that stays wet this time of year and gets hit the worst in some cases. With all this talk of equipment, it, it has me thinking about the fact that we've been um, seeing a lot about robots and, and the potential for robots in field crops. And Ian, I know we've had conversations about this. Are robots going to be the solution to all of our problems? Well, and again, a robot is a term that refers to so many things, right? Like almost every one of our uh, self-propelled sprayers now is a robot in some ways and uh, drive straight is a robot in some ways. It's a, it'll be a size thing. And so through robots, and it's something that's being looked at in, in Europe and other places, um, we can seed it, we can fertilize it, we can uh, uh, cultivate the weeds out of it and stuff. How do we get 200, 250, 280 bushel yields out of the field in small scale robots. That's a big hurdle. It is being looked at in places like Denmark and Sweden. They uh, they do have teams that are looking at these types of things, but um, I think we're way off on the harvest side of it. But on the other sides of it, you know, we've had four or five different platforms here in Ontario uh, that we've been demonstrating primarily with the Hort sector this year. Um, getting an idea of how people feel about them and, and the idea of autonomy and, and letting these things just run in the field by themselves. It's coming. I think we're close to seeing quite a, a surge of it, but how it all fits in the logistics of integrating with our big equipment, that to me is the exciting part of figuring out how it all works. The, the honest truth about it, um, and Ian touched on it, is getting the getting the product out of the field. So for, you know, clover seed is ideal because I mean, four bushels of the acre is a wonderful crop. Um, so <laughs> you can do a 12 or 15 acre field of clover seed and not fill the combine bin. Um, so you can use your tiny wagons and, and you don't even have to pull them in the field at that point because you can fill it off the road and 
takes you like eight minutes, but yeah, get into 200 bushel corn dry. What it went at home on the first field we did anyways, there's a lot of material got to come out of there. So I was, we were, I forget who I was talking to, but, um, you know, wouldn't it be a cool idea if you could get a, uh, you know, put a vacuum system and almost run a drag line to take corn out of a field. Um, now, to me, that sounds like a great idea, um, but you want to know what? It's probably um, going to take a lot of goofing around. Uh, and when it doesn't work, because your corn's wet, maybe it doesn't run high moisture corn. Well, now that's even more ignorant, and it's probably just easier to drive on the field and and fix some compaction issues. So, unfortunately, the the doing the compacting compaction damage is still easier than doing anything else, like literally anything else. <laughs> well, and the thing is, is that we've got to we've got to convince our farmers to be more conscious of how much rubber is under their equipment because that will force the the OEM companies to build stuff that allows more rubber to be put under it, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's the un- unfortunate, we're in that weird time in history where we understand it's a problem, um, but the the amount of work it would require um, to fix it seems burdensome. Think about way back when, oh, what is it, coal mines in Scotland were flooding, and the, like the only good way to do it was like lift a bucket out with a rope. Um, and use horses. So the whole thing about, well, you got to take care of a bunch of horses so that I can get water out of my mine shaft. Well, here comes along, what's his name, brings the steam engine. That would have seemed so much, like so much screwing around to put a steam engine in my mine shaft when I can feed a horse basically free food and use that the old school way of pulling water out of the, and you know, the same is true now. You've, I've met some, met some farmers who are all, you know, laid up and you know bent over at the waist because their back's so sore from milking cows in a tie stall barn cussing about robots well that thing's way too fancy i could i could milk six cows faster than any robot could milk um so we're in that time period now and we're all it um you know all these newfangled technologies to keep our ground from compacting uh you know not worth the time um we'll just do it the old way well eventually we're going to look back on this time and be like can you imagine we used to drive in our fields because when you look at robotics one of the things that from this summer that's been interesting uh in the different fields that we've been in where we've had farmers come and look at these things is is their perception of them right well it doesn't look like a tractor so they have a hard time of understanding how it fits into the system type of thing right and i think with robotics what's going to be interesting is the technology vendors and the farmers have to get together to find some place in the middle because what the current system is versus what the new robotic thing might be don't exactly align. And so how much does each side have to give to find that sweet spot? And of course, no matter how much technology we have, farmers are always at the mercy of the weather and we don't know what it's going to be like for over the next couple of weeks and, and even next spring, as, as we say, to get that mitigation done. So um, maybe we could just end this conversation with, you know, what should farmers be focusing on? What's your number one best tip that you want people to get out of this conversation that we've had today? Um, Alex, why don't we start with you? Um, don't work wet soil. 
I guess is the the number one thing. Um, I know you think you got. There's better things that you can do with your time um, than than just going through the motions of tillage in unfit ground. Um, so that would that would be it, basically. Yeah. For me, it would be a, a trifecta of weight, traffic, and tire pressure. And make sure that you're thinking about those in the field to reduce the amount of area that's going to be damaged. And Laura? Both of these guys have, have uh, suggested some really great things. I'm going to look a little further out and just think of how to make your, your soils more resilient in the future. What can you do? Do better in the long term. I thank everybody for joining us in this conversation today. I think it was really interesting and very intriguing to, to get your perspective on, on what's been happening in our fields this fall and, and how we might be able to mitigate some of that damage that we are, we are seeing out there as a result of this wet weather. Thank you, everybody, for your time today. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, thank you. This is a Grain Talk HR on the Farm Spotlight. We are joined by Kelly Dobson, founder of Leadership a professional training and coaching organization based in Manitoba. Kelly also leads a national farm leadership program designed specifically for Canadian farmers to help manage their hectic farm lives. The national farm leadership program is a joint partnership between leadership and farm management Canada. I, I, I would describe it. It's a comprehensive leader development program. And I have to say, I think there's nothing like it in agriculture. And the reason I would say that is because um, it's both it's both online and in person. It offers a three day residency out in Victoria, uh, BC in March, which is one of the warmest places in Canada to get to that time of year. And it, and it also offers uh, unlimited coaching all year long to support farmers growth for one really thing in mind. And that is to really figure out for themselves what they could focus on that would actually increase their their performance on their farm for better results. And this is around this idea of actually practicing and figuring out what that's going to work. Because what we know is that uh, nobody really gets better without practice. And so, and that, I think that's a big shift. And we just had this comment this morning, an outtake interview with a participant. And it, and it went something like this. It said, what I got out of the program, and, and I think what was important, they said, was that um, leadership starts where most leadership development programs end. And I think that speaks to our commitment to really um, to really convert what they learn and what they uh, and, and, and what we teach inside of the program and actually commit it to to actually results on the farm. We're already starting intake interviews uh, for 2022. We take the time to get to know every single person uh, before they come in and really to get a sense of what they might be hoping to get out of the program. And so what's really starting to be interesting is what they're telling me is that they are now, I think, more than ever connecting making the connection between their personal um, and professional performance and the bottom line results of their business. And so they're actually realizing that how they show up is going to have a significant impact on, on others and, 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 and the performance of their business in the long term. And most, uh, the most common, I would say, phrase that we're hearing is, I want to do it right. Most are really wanting to be able to interact uh, with people on the farm more effectively. That's the number one. And they may, and they may talk about that in terms of um, within the family, um, engaging with employees, and really being able to, to have the skills to hang in on, on, on some of the most important conversations that go on uh, inside of the farm every day. So, so this gets to all manner of, of subject matter, and of course, not including um, farm transition and, and major purchases, but, and, but really that they feel like they've got the capacity um, to really talk about what matters most um, that's going to move their farm operation forward, and that they can lead those conversations.
we're just wrapping up the 2021 uh, cohort. The first thing they, they realized is that they didn't know what they didn't know. And so they're actually realizing now that they're able to um, change how they show up in certain situations and to get and get very different outcomes. Uh, many people are realizing um, aspects of their behavior that that aren't as effective as as what they thought they were, and they're able to make to make shifts um, uh, for 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 better outcomes. Many will talk about um, being able to to get unstuck about what their desires are, because because that, that happens from time to time. When we get into the difficult challenges. Many many people feel like. Um, uh, that, you know, they, they sort of internally, they've got, you know, one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake and that they're able to work through those and get unstuck themselves and, and, and to be able to then go into their farm environment with their family and actually be a lot more clear about what they want and to be able to move whatever it is that they're that challenge or opportunity in front of them to actually get closer to it or get clear about what that might be. And all of that, at the end of the day, what what I think we're really noticing is that um, people just feel a lot less stress. I mean, actually, some of the lowest hanging fruit we see we see in the program with a, with a few months in is that most people feel um, far lower levels of stress and uh, and they're able I think to find a, you know everybody talks about wanting to have um, uh, effective or appropriate work-life balance but actually being able to make that happen where it doesn't feel like that there's that there's a cost to that uh, whether it be in whether it be in business results uh, or, or getting things done on time um, the fact that they can they can actually see how they can do that um, I would say those are those are some of the benefits that were that were that that I'm, that are being reported back to me. For more information on the National Farm Leadership Program, go to leader-shift.ca and click on the Take Charge tab. I'm joined by Green Farmers of Ontario's Board of Directors Chair Brendan Burney. Thank you for being with us today, Brendan. No problem at all. The Federal Provincial Territorial Meeting of Agriculture Ministers was held this week in Guelph, and you had the opportunity to attend this event. So what were the positive takeaways from that meeting for Ontario grain farmers? Well, I think in general, it was nice to to just be in person with with some of the the various leaders in Ontario in the different sectors, as well as Minister Thompson uh, with her hosting this uh, reception that I attended and being able to just have some face-to-face open conversations with maybe the some of the issues that are facing agriculture in Ontario, whether it be on the, the climate side or opening up some markets or or just trying to, to work through some of the challenges. And we've got a, an ag minister that's willing to listen, and I very much appreciated uh, the time that I was able to chat with her on the uh, at that meeting. Did you find the conversations with the ministers have they changed now since the pandemic has shown how resilient farmers are during difficult times? I think there is a, a real respect for what we do on the farm uh, coming from Minister Thompson. Um, I think that that's always been there, but I think we've shown that as a sector, we've been able to kind of continue what we do with uh, maybe fewer interruptions in some of the other sectors. So. I, I know that it was pointed out to me that uh, we are a, a resilient bunch and we're doing a lot for, for Ontario and it's appreciated by the minister for certain. And it's been a busy week for you. There was also a board meeting as well. Um, what were the key issues given that there is so much going on right now? Yeah, I think we, we had some discussion just with regards to the, the harvest that is going on right now. I know there there's been a good couple days here of harvest and then we got a little more rain. So some people are closer to wrapped up than maybe they thought they'd be a week ago. Um, so we kind of touched on that. We had some good discussion on the government side and 
what maybe we're, we're planning to, to try to do with this uh, after this recent election. And then we're looking out uh, seeing a provincial election coming up uh, next year and maybe what some priorities can be for that. But it was nice in general to have uh, to have a board meeting, be able to, to see the, the board members in person. Some uh, were able to connect virtually from their combines uh, as well. So we uh, we made it work. And speaking with the board, um, having that, those conversations with them, from your point of view, what do you feel um, in, over the next few months um, will people be focusing on um, in terms of getting ready for the next year? And what were some of the uh, the lessons that they learned um, over, over the, the past uh, couple of months? I think these past couple of months, it's been one of those uh, interesting times where uh, you've you've started a day's work and then a little bit later you're delayed with what you're doing and have to come back to it after a rainstorm. So we've shown that uh, we're able to, to be kind of flexible to get that crop off. And at the same time, this year has been a little different in that most of the pockets uh, that we're speaking with have, have had pretty good yields, uh, both corn and soybeans, um, and some pretty good prices. So that's a combination that uh, we often wish for and don't see. So being able to take advantage of that uh, has been good for our farmers. And they're also looking out to, to next year and seeing rising input costs, uh, maybe some of this discussion on fertilizer reductions. And we'll be able to touch on and have a bit more conversation on that at our uh, policy day as well in December. Are there any particular things in policy day, uh, during policy day, that you are looking forward to that will be brought up um, by um, um, uh, various uh, delegates and, and, and the people involved? Well, I know for myself, it'll be big uh, and Crosby as well, just because since we've taken our roles, uh, there's been very little uh, interaction face-to-face with our, our delegates. So in this case, we, we do have a, a face-to-face meeting for policy day set up. So I think just having that continued discussion from a farm level is always important. Um, some regional issues as well as some provincial issues and even national issues with regards to uh, carbon um, some of the climate change initiatives that are maybe coming our way, uh, some of the, the various pesticide products that we're having trouble uh, getting into the province that are maybe in a shorter supply as well as the fertilizer. So there's no shortage of topics and uh, those as well as I'm sure a bunch of others will certainly be uh, topical and, and addressed at the policy day. And there's always strength in numbers. So how or what type of advice or what can you say to farmer members out there in terms of how they can engage themselves into the conversations that you're having with government um, that the that uh, Green Farmers is having with the uh, with the government um, as well? Well, I think in general, we try to make sure that we're putting the message out on our end and our directors do a really good job in the regions of doing it. But it takes them hearing it uh, a lot of times I've found and so any of those personal connections that delegates or, or members have with politicians where they can, uh, whether it's sit down face to face with them or at a Zoom meeting and just kind of mention to them what some of the uh, the areas on farm that they're concerned with and, and would like some clarity or some help on. I think the more touch points we have with our government officials, uh, the, the better and the better that we can maybe foster some understanding on their end of what exactly it is that we do at our at our farm gate. Just sort of as a as a overall um, uh, observation on your part, what have you seen in terms of how farmers have handled these challenging times and these conditions with regards to, you know, the delays in the weather and just the entire past twenty months um, itself? 
I think that uh, in general, we've we've handled it well. Uh, I know a lot of people were missing their their daily uh, coffee shop visits with friends and farmers uh, or just some of the family interaction that was restricted for a while there. Um, so coming through this, I guess my hope is that that we are on that good side. I know that uh, there will be some mental health struggles coming out of it that maybe we, we weren't able to see based on, uh, I guess, being kind of closed behind our doors uh, in our houses for a while there. But um, I think that uh, our farmers have always shown that they're a resilient bunch and there's, there's certainly been leading uh, by that example over these last 20 months, especially. I certainly thank them for everything they've done within their local communities and to stay safe and, and provide safe food for Canadians. And we're trying to, to echo that message to the government to make sure they understand just how uh, resilient our farmers have been in, in making sure we have safe food for can- Canadians. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because I know um, that mental health was one of the key touch points when it came to the um, the, min- the minister's meeting um, this past week in in, uh, in Guelph. And uh, mental health is uh, uh, one of the key areas that um, that you speak well of as well. Just in terms of um, where it is at at this point, in in your opinion, with uh, farmer members, um, how engaged are are they? How aware are they in terms of um, what resources out, are out there and how it, how important is it, it for them to have those um, resources accessible to them? I think we've done a pretty good job in the last few years of, of opening up that, that conversation and dialogue. And I, I just encourage people that if they are struggling, just reach out to whether it's a, a friend or family member to mention it. If it's anything further, of course, uh, reach out to somebody that might be able to help from a medical side. But I think it's just important to know that uh, we're not uh, alone in some of these struggles, Um, whether it's ourselves or a family member that's going through it. uh, Sometimes it does feel isolating and that it's not going to get any better. But there is certainly hope that uh, if with the right uh, doctor or the right medication, the right discussions, uh, kind of that overall self-care plan, that things can get better. Uh, So hopefully uh, we've made it through fairly well. Uh, as a sector, but uh, there's certainly no shame in asking for help uh, on the mental health side. Same as there wouldn't be if you you broke your leg, you would certainly go in and, and ask somebody for help. Thank you, Brendan, for your time with us today. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Grain Talk podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more ways to connect with us, including the latest webinar, market report, and our e-newsletter, go to gfo.ca slash grain talk. A special thank you to our guests this week, Laura Ferrier, Ian McDonald, Alex Berry, Brendan Burney, and Callie Dobson. If you like what you've heard today, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple iTunes and Spotify. And remember, five-star reviews help us grow our audience.